Hello everyone, I'm Stefan Bertram, I'm here with Ben Burgess, we're doing philosophy for the people. Today we're talking about Zizek, and I'm going to start on the most important question, uh, Ben. Is Zizek too Stalinist, or is he not Stalinist enough? I don't know, but definitely one or the other. Uh, that seems to be the consensus. <laughs> the, the disjunction of too Stalinist or too Stalinist enough, everybody can agree that he falls in there somewhere. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Stefan. I should also say, I'm just going to awkwardly wedge this in before we start talking because I don't, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that I'll forget it if I don't. Uh, that uh, as anybody watching this on either TIR or cross streaming down to GTA knows, we've got a big New York live show uh, next Sunday. Uh, and uh, for those who are not able to be there in person, but who, uh, but who are patrons of one of the shows. We're going to do a little Q&A thing at the end. And so if you post on the Discord uh, for, for either of these shows, or you know, Left Reckoning, I guess, if you're uh, doing that, uh, uh, we'll put your question in there, and we'll put that in the pool of, of stuff for the, the Q&A. I, uh, I promised our producer, Jordan, that I would, I would say that during the stream, and I, I was just thinking, it's like, you know what? I should say that at the beginning. Because I am not going to remember. Don't, you don't have the anxiety of it hanging over you. <laughs> I am not going to remember to say that at the end. Uh, but yeah, Zizek, Stalinist, not Stalinist enough. Uh, good question. The uh, the uh, I feel like a while back that you know the critique was usually that he was too Stalinist. Um, like that was my impression. You know that uh, a while back that I would see people. Um, like bring up statements where he'd say things like in a certain sense, I prefer, you know, Stalinism to liberal democracy or whatever. It'd be like, aha, see, you know, he said it. Uh, and, and they'd like, after right. he, he was meant to be for a while, he was a big racist, allegedly, you know, um, people would yeah. say that in the guardian or whatever. Right. Because he, he said, I don't know, something that we should have open borders or whatever. Yeah, so some of it was because of his commentary on refugee stuff, where I think, you know, his ultimate point was, you know, I mean, he, he was in favor of letting in lots of Syrian refugees, but, uh, you know, sort of along his way there, there was some on the one hand and the other hand stuff that offended people. I think that also got mixed up with no, him, being, uh, <laughs> him being accused of um, uh, him being accused of anti-Semitism uh, over like some of the things that he'd said while defending Jeremy Corbyn, that was, that was also part of it. But yeah, those are kind of like the, the sort of 2019 things that people were mad at him about. And those seem to have largely faded away. Um, the latest crop of people getting mad at him is uh, again, it's, it's sort of on the Stalinism point. Uh, it's uh, it's sort of the opposite. And part of it's because of some of his positions on Ukraine that get, get that gets like mixed into this. But uh, but also sometimes people will uh, so there's a article that came out in Counterpunch on uh, like right at the beginning of the month that uh, that did this that I talk about a little bit in the uh, in the essay today uh, that says that sort of goes back to his history as a as a dissident in Yugoslavia in the 80s and to to say actually you know actually he's like a he's like an anti-communist which you know as I say, it's kind of the opposite. So uh, we should say for anybody who's, who's tuning in and, and, you know, doesn't know 
uh, you know, what they're looking at exactly, but uh, that we're talking about an essay that I wrote on the new philosophy substack. Um, so it's called Philosophy for the People, benburgess.substack.com. This is the third week of it. And uh, this is the week that we are uh, we're talking uh, talking with Zizek. I'm actually going to post it in the chat this time because I didn't remember last time until an hour and 28. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, one thing, I don't know if you really care about this, but yeah. I, I find the word Stalinist very interesting. Um, yeah. Because it's used in a way now which has nothing really to do with Stalin. Mm-hmm. And nothing maybe even to be used like how it was used in the 1960s. Like in the 1960s, Stalinist meant someone who approved of the Soviet Union's intervention to protect their allied governments in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, and right now, well, one primary way it's used is, you know, uh, for people who are defenders in some way or another of the current kind of bourgeois regime in Russia. And obviously, Stalin himself was um, a grave digger of the bourgeois regime in Russia. So how the term kind of describes anything to do with him or even its meaning in the 60s um, is interesting. And, you know, especially kind of in recent years, it's really accelerated. Like people will call Noam Chomsky a Stalinist. Or obviously the the related word is, is tanky. Which yeah, is, tank, I I was I've, I've seen more often in this context than Stalinist, uh, but you know, but I mean, the same points apply to you know, like yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've seen anybody called Noam Chomsky a Stalinist, although that'd be very funny. And maybe in the UK they are. Uh, I certainly have seen the occasional person calling him uh, calling him a tanky, which is which is funny enough, right? Given the given the context, because yeah, originally tanky, just like you said met somebody who like when you know brezhnev sent in the tanks uh in uh in 68 to crush the prague spring or when uh khrushchev did the same thing 12 years earlier to uh to to crush uh the uh, hungarian revolution that you know the workers councils in budapest that they were you know like a western leftist to make excuses for that and then it sort of drifted i think over the decades to mean like generally western leftists who are sort of too soft on or make excuses for authoritarian regimes. And like, I even use it in that way in, uh, in, in one of my books, you know, but like, since I wrote that, the term has become so corrupted that it's like, eh, I, I don't know if we should even use that anymore. Cause it's like, cause it's just kind of become this nonsense term for like objecting to Western foreign policy, like uh, to the point actually. Right, you're, Marge- you're either a, a narco nativist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like mad. I hope those aren't the options. But uh, but yeah, like uh, Branko Marchetich wrote an article in Current Affairs where he he pointed out essentially. I mean, he didn't you know he didn't put it quite this way because he's probably more healthy and less online than I am. So I don't know if he, he would think to put it this way. But like where he pointed out essentially that by the current standards of how people are accused of being tankies, like Eisenhower would be a tanky because like he didn't want to escalate tensions with the Soviet Union. By uh, you know, by by intervening or you know, uh, doing too much, you know, over over the invasion of Hungary. Uh, kind of, so yeah, there is a really impressive ideological function going on at the moment where kind of American imperialists denounce the concept of like a sphere of influence, yeah, which is really <laughs> really like sharply like ideological. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. They don't want spheres of influence. They want just the one. (laughs) It's pure ideology. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Somebody has to do that at some point in this episode. But yeah. Uh, It's... uh, Yes, it is very funny to me, especially because I'm having this conversation on my end from Mexico that uh, that that now the U.S. doesn't like spheres of influence. Uh, and right. I, I want to know when that happened. But um, right, you, but, you go to Walmart every day in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Walmart's a little bit of a hike, but you know the the Oxo or Seven Eleven would be a little faster. But yeah, so, so you know the point stands. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly spheres of influence are uh, have not gone away in American thinking, but I mean, there's a, like, I mean, actually, like, okay, this is a very grim example, but along the same lines, I saw uh, the Washington Post, you know, like, they'll, they'll send, like, an email every once in a while with, like, articles they're highlighting or whatever, and uh, the one I got this morning was about, like, this is what a, you know, crowded building looks like you know, when Russia bombs it and, uh, and, you know, you click on the article and, and you see some, you know, some really grim stuff, you know, some, some, some real human suffering. And, and the part that I do find a little bit of black humor in is like, okay, I mean, like this discovery about what crowded buildings look like when you bomb them. Uh, I, right. I, it would have been interested if it was. Yeah. I mean, probably it was in like 2012 when we were fighting Assad or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, I, 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 it would have been interesting if the Washington Post made this discovery back in like 2003. <laughs> they, uh, they could have could have shared it with us then uh, in Baghdad or, you know, yeah, 2002 uh, you know, in Kabul or, you know, as you say, you know, any of these other, uh, you know, Yemen right now, et cetera, which is, you know, which, which is like, uh, you know why I find that way of dividing up the world so uh, so depressing. You know, it's like like is is that really it? Do you really just kind of have to pick, you know, a uh, a great power to be an apologist for? Um, I think I, I, I'm not sure if you're confused here, Louise. But what was what Ben was talking about at the start was oh yes, the live show. I'll, I'll we'll answer questions if if I like them enough on this show. Yes. You can you can ask um, questions right now in the chat on the YouTube video that you're actually watching, and I believe so the, the whole thing he was talking about with Discord and so on was about the live show. Yes, yes. If you have questions, so okay, I should. Um, I in my rush to say that before I forgot to say it, I, I was probably <laughs> it was kind of like ended up in the middle of a Stalinism question. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, so man, what about Stalinism? Okay, so if you have a question, the live show. Yeah. Uh, so, so this might be clearer. Uh, I would assume most people watching this know that the um, that this is Revolution, which is the podcast that is hosting this discussion you are watching right now, and uh, also gives them an argument where we're cross streaming it, and also our friends at Left Reckoning, we're doing a a live show at the cutting room in New York uh, this coming Sunday, the 22nd. And uh, there's going to be a Q&A at the end of it. And if you want to ask a question, you know, for the Q&A, this, this will be videotaped this time. Or videotaped, Jesus, I'm so old. Uh, this will be <laughs> you know, recorded. Uh, the, uh, probably not with the videotape. Uh, but uh, this, will be, this will be recorded this time. If you want to ask a question for any of the hosts of those shows, any of our guests, you know, we're going to have Bhaskar Sankar from Jacobin and 
Sam Cedar and Emma Viglin from Majority Report there as guests. Um, you can uh, you can go to one of the discords of the of the sponsoring shows and put your question there, and people will be collecting them and picking some out to ask at that show. None of which has anything to do with what we were talking about, but uh, but I just well, wanted I'm, to. I'm I'm going to use it to roll back a little bit. Um, and maybe go back to talking about, if you want to, continental analytic philosophy. Yes, please, please. Because I didn't know until today, or yesterday, actually, last night, that you did your dissertation on formal logic. Oh yeah, yep. <laughs> because I, I've, I've, I couldn't, I can't find the comment, which is sad. But someone did like a, a great kind of. People ask a lot on our such as philosophy. What's the difference between continental and analytic philosophy? And it's hard to say, really. Sure. But one, one person gave like, they started off a long answer, but they started it first with like a slanderous description of continental philosophy and then a slanderous <laughs> description of analytic philosophy, uh, which is, it was, it was a good start. And it was something like, you know, um, analytic philosophy is, is, is like kind of formal logic divorced from kind of anything to do with the real world. And then yeah. continental philosophy is like mysticism uh, divorced in any way from the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, well, so it's interesting because that was actually the, the starting point for the essay that I basically say, um, you know, Slavoj is kind of the ultimate continental philosophy person in, in many ways. Um, but I really like him and the sort of way to, you know, make that interesting is, is my philosophical background is like hyper analytic. And so I talk about that a little bit at the beginning. Uh, and I actually, in the, in the rough draft of this, I had way more stuff about uh, the continental analytic distinction. And then I was like, okay, I need to cut like 90% of this because this has nothing to do with, <laughs> it's nothing to do with what the essay is about. And these but, things end, end up enormously long for whatever reason every time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like I didn't want to make it. It was, it was already, it was already like, you know, it, it was already long. Uh, I, I didn't want to make it, you know, way longer by including a lot of uh, a lot of stuff like this. Uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, I I think you know one of the interesting things about this is that actually trying to draw a clear, bright line between those two types of philosophy is like really difficult. It's much more difficult than you think when you actually sit down and 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 start to do it because a lot of the things that people think are differences are sort of differences. If you ignore all the cases where they don't apply and you know, you're, you squint a little bit and it's like, yeah, right. I mean, for me, I think the main thing to do is like, it's kind of about like historic influences, right. Which yeah. kind of have some, it's kind of, you know, there's like kind of chains of ancestry in philosophy, which there are websites where you can kind of look back through kind of dissertation, there's like chains of dissertation holders um, you know, <laughs> or, Kant or whatever, you know, um, and kind of the people that we call analytic philosophers and the people we call continental philosophers do kind of have like different chains here and like different influences. If we go back and this then influences things like method and so on, but nothing is as hard as fast as the slanderers of both sides would kind of try and get across. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, you definitely get different chains of, you know, dissertation committees and stuff. In fact, that that's a really good way to do it because, like, that's actually going to be a difference. But um, and then, yeah, you have uh, like certainly methodologically, you know, you kind of know it when you see it. 
uh, so like it's definitely that kind of difference. Like there is there is definitely right, but some some philosophers have like a, a mixed mouth feel. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like uh, Bernard Williams, for instance. Mm -hmm. He's obviously kind of like in, like in the chain analytic. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, like you, you do get all kinds of, and and like even in terms of like intellectual influence is not like sort of like who you studied with necessarily, right. but uh, the but uh, but like what thinkers are influencing what you're saying. Then like it gets really confusing because I mean something that did make it into the final version was, um, you know, if there's one thing you go back to, like early analytic philosophers, Bertrand Russell, G. Moore, the Vienna Circle people in Europe, uh, a lot of this stuff, like, okay, if, like the, a lot of the influence that they were sort of rebelling against and trying to do philosophy a different way was Hegel. And, uh, but now, you know, you, you have like Pittsburgh kind of people who just do like analytic Hegelianism. So it's like, okay. Uh, and, and like on the continental side that, yeah, this part got cut, you know, like if you sort of think about the time period in which these both, these started to look like kind of coming to their own as really distinct beasts. I think one of the, the big, uh, sort of landmarks in that is Heidegger putting out his book being in time. Cause I think that like anybody in what was starting to become analytic philosophy sort of flipped through <laughs> like, that. Fuck this. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, you sort of be like, wait, what? <laughs> It just, it just seems, um, you know, people still, you know, it's like, yeah, like there are like some sentences in that, which I think you can quote, you know, maybe a little unfairly out of context, but also if you've ever tried to read that thing, it's not totally unfair, uh, you know, where he says like the nothing nothings and things like that. And like, you sort of, yeah, it, it just, it just seemed like uh, maybe not even worth the effort of trying to figure out what he's saying and respond to it. Uh, but now you get people who do like philosophy of mind in an analytic way who actually do say, Oh, actually there are all these insights from Heidegger that we could like import and like help make sense of this. Um, you know, so it's confusing, but I think in really broad brush terms, you know, you could say uh, probably in most cases, um, you know, you're putting a higher premium on clarity and conceptual precision which is not to say that like analytic philosophers have some kind of monopoly on those virtues but like probably you know in terms of like how how highly you weigh different things that can make something good you probably put a higher premium on those as opposed to other things uh analytic philosophy uh you're you probably spend more time thinking about structure of the arguments that you're making uh i mean like i think just crassly and maybe i am wandering into caricature territory here but like uh or slander whatever you said earlier like but it's like you know i, I don't think it's a slander i think it's like there's people who are really into continental philosophy kind of the uh the characteristic pleasure of that i think is reading a really dense book and that feeling where you feel like you've got it you've like sort of broken through and like you have a good feel for what the author is saying Whereas the, the, the thing for me is kind of, I guess, you know, when you say analytic philosophers emphasize clarity, the question is always, well, why wouldn't anyone emphasize clarity? But I sure. think the thing is, for someone like Heidegger, the point of him using really weird words, and he's he, like, he sounds weird in German too. Um, <laughs> and he uses Greek words in a way that they aren't normally used and so on. 
the point for Heidegger is he's trying to talk really weird because he's trying to get across a really weird point. He's deliberately sure. doing so because he's trying to say something really different to what everyone else said. And the thing is, when you try and do that in analytic philosophy, when you get try and get something really weird across, you either do it in kind of the language analytic philosophy, um, and it takes you a thousand pages to kind of get across like a weird metaphysic sure. like thought experiment, or you, you just don't. <laughs> and you do kind of what the, the, the slanderous idea of, of analytic philosophy, which we discussed in the first episode, which yeah. is where you you just do you just do yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on an edifice which maybe shouldn't like it doesn't even work that way, you know? No, totally. I think that yeah. I mean, I think that both kind of styles of um, you know presentation, which is I think what we're talking about more than anything, we make this distinction is like some combination of style of presentation and chains of influence, roughly. But like you know, and I think both styles have have their their drawbacks and and their advantages. I mean, I think um, I think that you have you know the more and again, yeah. I mean, nobody has a monopoly on clarity, but I mean, the more the more you sort of elevate the value of clarity as opposed to other values, the the less room you might be creating for for you know saying like trying to get people to think in this totally different way, like Heidegger may have been trying to do uh, and. Um, and then, but that, of course, the trade-off is that, there, you know, I mean, there, there is more room for, for just sort of saying stuff where there's not all that much there, you know, once you really start to look at it, you know, but it, like, sounds impressive. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think that's, like, a real worry. It doesn't mean that it's, like, a, a you know, I, I think it would be silly to sort of assume that everybody, you know, that everybody who's writing that way is just doing sophistry and whatever and I, I clearly don't think so because i just wrote a five thousand word essay about why i like slavoj zizek so you know right, <laughs> but, kind of, um, his public speaking and writing at least i don't think zizek is really unclear or at all really i mean i guess the thing is he's as you say in the article maybe it's kind of unclear what his final point is with what he's saying but it, it certainly unit to unit you're like okay i get this i get this i get this i get this yeah, I think that's generally true. I mean, I'm, I'm actually surprised when I see people say, because uh, I do, like I haven't even seen it, even already in response to this essay, I've heard people say, ah, I don't understand what he means or whatever. And it's like, um, I think, yeah, I'd be interested in, in like sort of pressing people who say that about whether what they mean is they don't understand at a paragraph by paragraph level or they don't understand how the parts are, um, are fitting together. But you're right. I, I think he's not too bad as far as this goes. As, as far as people who, who are in that, um, you know, who are in that tradition, which he very, very much is, right? I mean, he's, he's a, uh, I mean, he's, um, uh, it's the, uh, I mean, it's like, you know, it was the old meme with the, like, Noah's Ark and the animals have been breeding in weird ways. So there's like the penguin with the elephant head or whatever, you know, the, the one for, I've seen one for him that's like the different parts are named like Hegel, Marx, Lacan, you know, <laughs> you know like like he is he is combining, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, supercontinental kind of influences and this kind of eccentric, um, kind of eccentric way of his own. Uh, and, um, you know, he, you know, and I think, um, you know, he says, uh, you know, there are certainly times you know, when, like, I think the Lacan, like the psychology, 
element of it in particular that it's like i think there are moments when i'm reading him or like when i read like mark fisher who was also a big lacan guy uh in his own way like they have uh where i feel like i could feel in the moment like okay i understand exactly what you're saying and that sounds true right and there are moments when i feel i don't know that's uh it's like it's a little uh you know could feel a little slippery i could feel like there's something that sounds sort of insightful about it but uh I'm not always sure what would even like how to even go about evaluating, you know, whether it's true, uh, because it's uh, you know like just the like the level on which the claims are being made is is sort of a little bit uh, a little bit hard to pin down, um, and then you know there yeah so I I think it's um, you know one, one thing I guess just to like sort of zoom out the lens a little bit you know was. You know, was saying here is that you know my so obviously a lot of uh slavoy's influences are not mine uh you know that they're, they're you know like like he's he's sort of working in traditions that are you know pretty alien you know to some of them at least uh to uh to my philosophical background and then even when you know even when like we could sort of distill like okay a through Z, like here are a bunch of things that he thinks. And, you know, it's a much longer list than just, you know, 26 A through Z. Like he has spent many years weighing in on a lot of different, a lot of different subjects, a lot of different kinds of subjects. And it's certainly, you know, the claim, the reason I wrote the essay is not that, you know, every single opinion that the man has ever expressed about culture, politics, or philosophy that I'm like co-signing. Cause I mean, clearly not that would be a weird coincidence if uh you know like every single thing you know uh you know with if i was just like aligning on every single point in fact i even i even point to some examples in the article place where i do disagree with him uh that like you know he's, he's again he said a lot of things about a lot of subjects over the years some of which i agree with some of which i disagree with some of which i'm not quite sure what to think about uh so that's not really the the point for me the point is that I'm kind of, I wanted to do two things in the essay. One of them is just a little bit of a personal reflection on what engaging with this guy's work has meant to me over the years and some of what I've gotten out of it and learned from it. And then the other one is saying, okay, there are these people who write these like giant sweeping condemnations of the whole thing. So the, uh, the Gabriel Rockhill essay in Counterpunch a couple of weeks ago, is the sort of most recent high profile example. And I'd, I'd already been thinking about writing something about Zizek uh, even before that, uh, you know, it would have been less polemical. It would have just been like, you know, hey, I'm an analytic philosophy guy, but you know, I, I think Zizek's really interesting and there's there's good stuff there and you should, you know, should check it out. Uh, and and it kind of, because, I, because the Rock Hill thing was getting so much traction, I thought it's like, okay, I'll be sort of, um, do it in a slightly more polemical way. Like, here's why I don't think the condemnations make sense. So the Rock Hill is a recent example. There's also a couple others that I mentioned in the, in the essay. There's, uh, there's one, um, there's a, um, you know, the, like Rock Hill calls him capitalism's uh, court jester. There's one on the world socialist website, like last year sometime that was like, 
uh, you know, it was more narrowly focused on the Ukraine stuff, but it was like the same kind of idea. I think it, it called him like a, a wolf in clown's clothing uh, was the uh, was the headline on that one. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and then you know this is like a little bit older than the sort of current wave of anti Zizekri, but like there was a uh, but uh, Current Affairs a couple of years ago uh, did a uh, had an article uh, not by Nathan but it was Thomas uh, a hyphenated last name that I have to admit Muller something uh, I Muller Nielsen that might not be it but anyway it's something like that that uh, that is like also another one of these big sort of like this guy is just full of shit, you know, you should, so that, that, that was a, he's too Stalinist one, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was the one where I thought he was too Stalinist. There's most recent pieces. Right. think he's not Stalinist enough. That is right. that like, essentially they, essentially these new critiques kind of like, you know, cross the event horizon for that and come back and say, actually he's like a, you know, he's, he's like a, you know, anti-communist cold warrior or something that he's a, he's a stooge for, for West, Western imperialism. And a lot of that is based on sort of going back and looking at his, uh, his record as a, uh, as a dissident uh, in, uh, in Yugoslavia, uh, you know, back when that was a one party state and, um, and, and criticizing that and then kind of trying to draw a connection between that and some of the, um, you know, some of his recent, you know, current events takes, you know, on, uh, on the war in, in Ukraine. And, you know, the, the line I, I take on this in the article is look, I, uh, I disagree with him about the Ukraine stuff. I talk about why a little bit in there, not extensively, it's not what the essay is about. And I've also written a jillion things about this that I, I, you know, I, I link to like one or two of them in the article, but I've I've written a lot about why I think uh, why why I think what I think about uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, Jacobin, Carfares, Sublation. You can check all that out, right? But I I am like way more of a dove about all that stuff uh, than than he is. Um, I will also say that you know since I, well, I mean I think I think that's the the fun distinction, right? Um, yeah. Well, well, there's one way to do it, right? Where kind of um, maybe you and you and Chomsky are doves, yeah. but I, I don't think my kind of um, very lukewarm views on Ukraine come from kind of doviness, yeah. uh, as opposed to kind of it, I just don't think it's, it's the right war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, um, you know, I think I think uh, I think wars in. Uh, Wars in general are really bad. That doesn't mean that, you know, that doesn't mean that we uh, have to embrace like absolute, you know, Gandhian, you know, pacifism. I think that you can have, uh, you know, it, like, look, if, if the, uh, if, you know, we're having this conversation on January 15th, right. If, uh, if the uh, events in, uh, in Brazil, you know, seven days ago, you know, had broken differently, and uh, the the military had uh, had had sided, you know, with the the Bolsonaro people in a way that they didn't, um, and actually like seized power in uh, in Brazil and deposed Lula. Then, like, I think you know, I think uh, you know, if 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 there ended up being like a you know civil war over that, right? I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know how how realistically you know, close there is a timeline where something like that happens, but I mean, just run with that example, right? I would not be a dove about that war, um, you know, and I don't even think, you know, 
um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that there, you know, I, I think absolute Gandhian pacifism isn't isn't really a a workable position. I think that you need to be able to, you know, democratic majorities when their you know wills are thwarted by by coups, invasions, whatever. I think there are there are times that you need to um, that you know war is uh, is unavoidable. But I also think like there is a sort of more general point to be made here about how you know, right at the core of socialist politics, uh, thinking about, you know, the idea that you want to, um, you know, that you want to empower the working class, that you object to the sort of basic power relations in, uh, in, in the world around you, like there is no more extreme manifestation of those power relations in a lot of ways than wars between nations, because, um, I mean, think about, you know, like if, if you are, you know, like if you're some uh, working class Russian kid who's uh, who's um, in in uniform, then your life is in danger. You know, on the uh, on the front in Ukraine, and if you're a Ukrainian soldier or you're just like a you know Ukrainian civilian, you know, in a you know city that has its power cut off or gets bombed or all that stuff then, you know, you're suffering in extreme ways, but like, yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a, uh, uh, you know, if, if, um, but, you know, if you're like a Russian oligarch, you know, you're, you're just fine. Right. You know, I mean, if, if you're, you know, Dick Cheney and his friends at Halliburton, you know, weren't in any danger, you know, from, uh, from the war, uh, you know, from the war in Iraq. I mean, uh, um, I mean, very rich Russians do just drop dead a lot. But, and that is <laughs> well, they, they tend to fall out of windows, but I think that's a slightly different problem. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I think it's interesting to talk about this because if there is a criticism of Zizek that I'm sympathetic to, it's the idea that, yeah, basically his foreign policy is like the European Union's foreign policy. Um, but obviously, definitely personally, I, I can't be too... Uh, far along any kind of denunciations of, of <laughs> Zizek is, is NATO, because obviously I was um, a member of a, a Pentagon-funded militia um, yeah. as part of the Middle Eastern Civil War. Um, and obviously uh, a Pentagon-backed militia, which Zizek uh, is a big supporter of. Um, for those that don't know, um, Zizek gave the opening speech at Kobani Social Soviet social sciences university department rather um last year while chomsky had given the the previous one yeah <laughs> yeah i mean and look this is actually that that very point that you just made about you know i mean so the the militia in which you uh, you served and then you know now anybody who's imagining doesn't know the story who's imagining you know stefan is rambo uh, you know, with the, the ammunition, you know, belt, you know, over the, the shoulders and everything, um, you know, might not be getting a totally accurate picture of what that service was like, but you know, you, 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 went over there, you, uh, you were, uh, you know, you were, you were, uh, you were serving in, uh, in it, uh, even if you ended up after, after basic training as like, a, I, I don't even know what the title would be, but, um, you uh, you ended up doing propaganda service for them, but um, but uh, anybody who wants to read about this, uh, buddy Connor Kilpatrick wrote a wrote a good article uh, a couple a uh, couple years ago. But uh, he wrote a good movie about it too. 
yes, maybe someday we'll get to see it. Um, but uh, but look, you describe that as a Pentagon fundable issue, which is one accurate way to describe it. A right. different way to describe it would be a um, would be like a, the the militia of a sort of liberatory socialist, you know, experiment, you know, in, uh, in awful conditions. Those are both true, right? But they have, it's, uh, but I think that complexity does get us to one thing that frustrates me about some of the critiques of Zizek because um, like, look, you could do this. I mean, you could go, I mean, we're on this revolution here. Let's, let's just use the, the favorite in-house example and go back to the Haitian Revolution, right? I mean, you know, you could you could point out that there was a phase of the Haitian Revolution where a lot of those people, uh, the the sort of leaders of the revolution, were actually commissioned officers in the army of the uh, the Spanish Empire because um, they were um, that was part of the the arrangement, you know, when with Spain for their own reasons, out of absolutely no sympathy for the cause, but out of reasons of inter-imperialist rivalry, you know, was willing to uh, was willing to lend material support to uh to the the revolutionaries in haiti and that all seems fine to me i mean i don't i don't know the slightest objection to any of that and like like in other words like i remember uh lenin uh there's a um a book i think it's a biography um tony cliff uh who's a uh who's a british socialist writer who's, who's deceased now but he he wrote a bunch of um pretty sure this was Tony Cliff. Uh, he, uh, he wrote a bunch of like multi-volume biographies of Lenin and Trotsky and some of these other people. And I remember in one of those books, uh, I read many, many years ago, there's a line where um, there's a point where I think the, uh, like Germany, like the Kaiser's Germany was actually like willing to, to say, like it looked like uh, the, the Bolsheviks, you know, we're going to, you know, might be having to fight off, you know, some of the allied armies, the Kaiser is like, Oh, you know, you want some stuff to, to help you with that. And, uh, and, and right. Lenin's, yeah, so you really made that error once, but it was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I mean, it, it does. If we want to return to Stalin's again, it does prove yeah. that Rojava is the most Stalinist country of all, because like Stalin, they, they're getting land lease from the U S <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. The red army in world war two. Uh, was 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 getting extensive land lease for the U.S. Like a lot of a lot of um, uh, like yeah tanks manufactured in Detroit, you know, were uh, were being used by the Red Army to uh, to to fight Hitler, and uh, I'm I'm glad of it. Right, and anybody who you know, so you know, and there's there's like, and in that case, we're talking about literal military support, uh, but we could you know even on a propaganda level, like look, I. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I've been on RT, uh, the, uh, the, the Russian sponsored, uh, television network, you know, I've, I've been, I've been interviewed on RT. I, I, I had no, uh, qualms or hesitations about accepting that, that interview request. I, there are friends of mine, um, you know, Naomi Caravani, who's going to be at the live show in New York, uh, used to have a show on RT. Um, and, I right, I mean, um, Ashley got paid decently for RT to write articles, and her only hesitation there should be anticipating them getting banned off the English internet. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, and that's a fair hesitation, but uh, especially given considering what's happened. Uh, but yeah, and like that all seems fine to me. I mean, like you know, you're you're ultimately um, 
sort of accepting some help from a imperialist, um, you know, from a, an, an imperial power, a smaller imperial power than the U.S. But I mean, this this sort of uh, weird dogma on some parts of the left now that like American imperialism is the only kind that counts seems bizarre to me. Um, you know, it's it's I, I think if you can. Um, you know, I mean, like, there's a reason that Eugene V. Debs in his anti-war speech that got him arrested didn't say actually the Kaiser is just fine, and he's being unfairly maligned, right? You know, like you could you could have. I mean, there, there is a thing of kind of is Russia imperialist on very strict Leninist definitions, but obviously, when you're talking to anyone that isn't kind of like a hyper ML nerd, you should realize yeah. that say Russian is Russia is imperialist. Um, they don't mean what Lenin wrote. They mean kind yeah. of a country which uses kind of quite straightforward force to kind of impose its will on its neighboring countries. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure Lenin's uh, analysis of imperialism, which he got from Bukharin is, is actually, um, you know, all that helpful uh, for, for understanding uh, the, uh, the contemporary phenomenon, but that's, and, and actually I also think that like, it tends to be tied into all these ideas about like, oh, we've reached this different stage of capitalism, this monopoly stage that I, I think are actually just kind of wrong. Uh, I think that you have to, um, you know, I've been teaching a class on capital and like, it's it's really been reminding me how much of the analysis of that book only makes sense if you assume sort of robust competitive pressures that, uh, that you know, monopoly capitalism theory uh, would, would tell us don't really exist, but separate issue, here's the point. Uh, that I, you know, like whether or not you want to say it's an according to Hoyle imperial power or not, it's, uh, it's certainly a gangster capitalist oligarchy, uh, severely socially conservative, uh, and, uh, and like economically inegalitarian to, to dystopian levels. Right. I mean, I, th I think these are all sort of just straightforwardly true things about contemporary Russia. And, and that it's they, they buried very effectively the very um, red or, or communist parts of the revolution in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Um, yeah. The pro-Russian the pro rebellion in, in 2014 came from the Ukrainian or whatever Russian left in Ukraine um and they didn't take up guns early enough and were smashed between kind of ukrainian nazism and russian capitalism um all the kind of members of the the communist party of donetsk were either killed uh, all the members of parliament from the communist party of donetsk were either killed fighting or they were expelled from parliament yeah <coughs> I mean, extremely unsurprising right i mean this makes sense um People, some like Western leftists uh, who aren't very um, clued in on this, will sort of point to the uh, the, the Russian Communist Party's, uh, you know, like support for for the regime. But I mean, like that's a, that that's not that's not the Russian left at this point. That's like a hollowed out um, organization that's about as meaningful as the Social Democratic Party in North Korea, which does exist. That is a real thing. Uh, that, uh, well, I, mean, I don't think the Russian left is much, but we shouldn't be. I mean, our left isn't so much either. So, no, 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 get no. I, yeah, I mean, there's a there is a there's a Russian left in the sense that there's an American left, which is which is to say, it doesn't have much uh, social power 
it's it's very marginal i will say that the um that like you know i uh i think if we're comparing the two i think russian leftists tend to uh to put more on the line for uh for for what they think because because they're they're a lot more likely to uh uh you know get the shit beaten out of them and you know and do stints in jail and all that stuff for uh, for expressing their political opinions than their uh than their american counterparts but yeah i mean that's uh so the, the you know the point is that you know whatever you know whether it's according to Hoyle imperialism or not it's certainly bad news uh, from any kind of left perspective and it is engaged in something that you know at least speaking loosely looks like inter-imperial competition with um, with the United States but I think you know if if you can sort of use that to to get your own message out then then go for it I I, I think it's I think it's absolutely silly to moralize that but then the flip side of that is that if you are a democratic dissident in Yugoslavia in the 1980s, then this idea that like you're, you know, I don't know, sinning against the ghost of Lenin or something, if you, you know, if, if you sort of use uh, platforms that might be made available to you by something like the, you know, Western funded, you know, Conference for Cultural Freedom, I think is, I, I, I think is, is just as silly as saying, oh, no, 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 don't go, don't solo yourself by uh, by going on uh, on RT, uh, I'd also point out that in the um, you know specifically in the case of the Rock Hill article, he uh, there's also this like very strange line where he says, uh, well, uh, I mean some of some of this stuff like this he's saying is just kind of the leftist equivalent of Glenn Beck drawing you know arrows on his his whiteboard you know showing how ultimately everything is funded by George Soros, but like. There's a really strange line where he's like, "Well, actually, uh, the uh, it's uh, that you know he wrote for a magazine in uh, in uh, Slovenia, you know, before the dissolution of Yugoslavia, that was uh, that uh, that the was accused of CIA of being funded by the CIA in a long and detailed report by the Yugoslav Communist Party. That's actually the line from the counterpunch piece. It's like." A, you don't say, right? The the ruling party of a one party state accuses, you know, its dissenters of of, of being CIA. I mean, like, I, I guess I guess we should take their word for it, right? I mean, if they said so in a long and detailed report, but you know, like all of this is kind of beside the point because, like, look, let's say the CIA was give them, like, I I don't think that's that's really that relevant. And then especially to to sort of circle back to where we were a minute ago, if you want to look at the guy's contemporary politics again, I have my disagreements. I I am a lot more worried about World War Three, in uh, in the context of of Ukraine, uh, and um, you know, and and as we established earlier, perhaps more of a hippie than either Stefan or Slavoj, uh, but um, but I think, uh, but also if you're going to look as if you're going to make all these insinuations about the guy's uh, relationship to or attitude towards the Western national security state. Uh, I don't, I don't think you should be doing that in a uh, in a single issue way. I think you need to look at the uh, look at the overall content of his output over the years, and it does, um, you know. And you know, you said something earlier about kind of having the foreign policy of of the EU, and in some ways, I can see the point, right? I mean, it's like against the war in Iraq, you know, uh, a lot a lot friendlier to you know support for the war in Ukraine, but. Um, by the way, fun fact that I found out when uh, researching my last book, 
uh, he and Christopher Hitchens were actually scheduled to have a debate about the war in Iraq uh, just before Hitchens got sick and they ended up having to call it off. Mm -hmm. uh, couldn't make the schedules work. But uh, that would have been YouTube gold. I would have been, <laughs> I, I'm actually kind of mad that, that doesn't exist. But, um, but also, like, look, if you're going to say, you know, use the words, you know, the, the acronym CIA 12 times over the course of the article, I, I do think it's a little ridiculous that you don't mention any of his commentary and all this stuff that actually, like, has seriously outraged the, uh, the national security state. Like, um, you know, his years of very strong advocacy for Julian Assange, like he visits Assange in prison, you know, he writes about him all the time. He brings him up all the time in interviews. He's like very all over the Assange case, Snowden, WikiLeaks, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, remember when he was on uh, the Michael Brooks show, he, you know, he said something funny about how he wanted uh, communism with Julian Assange characteristics, which, you know, I sort of take to be a very Slavoy way of saying that, um, you know, even if we need a strong state to do certain things that he wants, whatever, it's very important that we have certain kinds of transparency and civil liberties protections and all that stuff. And, you know, none of that, you know, none of this is a, none of this is a brief for like, you should agree with him about all of his political or even foreign policy opinions. I don't, but I do think it's a little ridiculous to sort of insinuate that the guy is a, you know, stooge of NATO and the CIA without bringing up any of these complications. Right. I mean, I think he's kind of very Syriza. Yeah. Kind of where, where his politics are, are kind of the left, but not quite the extreme left of kind of the European Parliament, where, yes, they kind of, they will support Assange. They will oppose kind of, and this is why I didn't want to say American imperialism. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say kind of the EU or Europe, because I don't think yeah. Zizek is a fan of, of the US in any way. But I think kind of the failing he has is, and, I, and I've, if everyone wants to see, Sublation Magazine, The Fe Fearful Book of Europe, uh, Birth of Europe, I make a kind of um, indirect kind of critique of, of Zizek's position on, on Europe there, on, on the war in Ukraine and so on, um, is that he's kind of, at the first kind of threat to Europe, he's, he's kind of like fallen in and been like, no, no, really, like, you know, I've said all these things about Stalinism, but really what I support is liberal democracy in Europe. And I hope that liberal democracy in Europe is something which can allow the left to prosper. But he's not kind of... Yeah, so, so I, mean, I, I mean, this takes us back to the Thomas Muller, Nielsen, or whatever that dude's name is, uh, the, uh, the, the current affairs article where... Uh, uh, that's that's back in the phase of saying that that uh, that Zizek's you know too Stalinist because I mean look I wouldn't deny that the guy is often like playful and provocative about how he puts things you know he he likes to uh, often you know it even in his writings and certainly in his interviews um, he'll he'll sort of say I'm I'm not gonna. I'm not going to try to do a Slovenian accent here. I'll, I'll, I'll just say this like I'm saying it. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to put this in a way that's, you know, you know, this is really going to surprise you, whatever. I will say blah, 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 right? And then he'll give some very counterintuitive formulation of whatever he's saying. But I also will say it's not like the sort of complaint that I might have about, you know, certain kinds of like right-wing figures that they – 
say these like vague and provocative things and then like if you really challenge them on it maybe they retreat to some more more defensible thing i don't think he's doing it that way i think if you actually like watch these interviews or you read these essays or books uh what he tends to do is he says the sort of counterintuitive thing and then like a paragraph later he's like spelling out exactly what he means by it and so in, in that guardian article i really hated he was very explicit about thing i hated yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think whether you agree or disagree, you know, like he, he will, you know, he, he's not going to leave you in the dark about where he's going. And I think on the point about Stalinism that uh, is quoted in that current affairs article, uh, it seems to me that, you know, what it's very clear, like if you've kind of seen enough, read or watched enough what he says, that like his point about that is you know, he's, he's not saying like, oh, I prefer Stalinism to, to liberal democracy in the sense that's like, oh yeah, I, I think Stalinism's great. You know, we should, we should have, we should totally have secret police and, you know, gulags and all that stuff. I'm all for it. You know, none of that namby-pamby liberal stuff where we say we shouldn't. That's not his point, right? His point is, is Stalinism is preferable to regular pro-capitalist liberalism in the sense that even if it's being manifested in a sort of disastrously distorted way, there is this sort of core radical impulse. There's this attempt at this fundamental break with the status quo and building something else. Whereas with regular, you know, pro-capitalist liberalism, you've just given up on that entirely. Right? I mean, he wrote this whole big thick book called In Defense of Lost Causes, where um, you know he he says, uh, "God, I actually should not be bringing this up because I don't even remember who the quotes." <laughs> Uh, there's a famous quote that you know that he, he brings up uh, from like an old socialist writer in like the 19th century about you sort of uh, you know struggle for the things you want and they don't happen and when they finally happen they're not what you want and then you go back and you try again and you know you fail again and you fail better and you know and it's like that's that's the point that he's making about Stalinism that like that's that that Stalinism even though it went very wrong right is is an attempt to um, you know attempt to escape our current you know global economic realities and 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 create something that's fundamentally different and it's not that like that attempt went great let's just do the exact same thing again and you know and hope for the best right you know that like he's proposing that we recreate east germany the point is that like you know you don't give up on the sort of uh radical horizons uh which is which is kind of you know, I, I think in some ways is actually kind of Zizek at his best. You know, this is the this is the sort of thing he's saying with some of the stuff that um, I think both that piece and also the Rock Hill one sort of quote in ridiculous ways that he says about violence, where you know he'll sort of say, oh, actually, you know, Hitler is not violent enough, and you know, and and these authors will sort of insinuate that he's saying that Hitler should have killed more people, and it's like, come on. Do you really think that's yeah, what he I mean, says? It's that kind of thing which is very unimpressive intellectually where you don't understand anything. Don't understand something. So you're like, isn't this baffling and crazy? And it's like, well, maybe you're just well, either yeah. alive or you're just you're a bit thick. Yeah, yeah. But like like either you didn't read far enough to get the like, you know, very explicit explanation. Uh, which actually does come very soon after that remark about what he means, or uh, you have, um, or you you just uh, you know, or yeah, or maybe you're not being honest, right? Uh, so I think that in the in the violence case, right, the way he's using the term violence is like sort of forcibly imposing your will 
on on others uh and in um and so the point you know he says hitler's not vile enough he also says like gandhi to his credit is more violent you know he's not making the historical claim that gandhi killed more people than hitler he's uh he's saying that like gandhi in using uh peaceful methods to throw off this deeply entrenched regime of british colonialism in india uh was doing like in a much more fundamental way was sort of imposing his will on the world than hitler i mean and, that, that just made me think well was actually was gandhi actually violent enough then yeah yeah yeah, yeah uh, sure um i mean i i actually think one real disagreement i might have is i probably like gandhi less than he does but whatever you know put that aside like um Whereas, uh, whereas Hitler, as, as murderous as he's being about it, right, is, is ultimately just trying to preserve uh, the, you know, uh, the, the capitalist status quo, um, you know, against, against revolutionary threats. You know, it's, it's not an attempt to sort of fundamentally alter the, uh, the world around. And that's the point that he's that's the point that he's making. And, you know, you can dislike the way that he's making it, and that's fine. I mean, I, I actually, I actually mentioned in the article a author, uh, Oren Nimni, also writing in Current Affairs, uh, who wrote a book, who wrote a, an essay called "Defining Violence," where I think he did actually make totally reasonable criticisms of uh, of, of Zizek's way of talking about this stuff, uh, and you know, and I, I think I can see both points, right? I mean, I think that like, I, I think I think Zizek is saying something interesting. And like he's sort of like getting something interesting across by talking this way, but like I can I can see, I think Nimni has a good enough point about the sort of case for using the word violence in a more careful way that you know I've I've actually signed that article in classes before, but uh, but but the point is it's it's just silly to sort of like look at the stuff and say oh he actually likes Hitler you know he's saying that you know he's saying that Hitler wasn't violent enough or you know he's you know no. he's saying. You know what, what term is is facing immense abuse lately? Perhaps even more than stylist or tanky. What's that? Genocide. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like your uh, um, gentrification is genocide. That kind of thing, or like what? What do you? Uh, what sort of example are you thinking of? Oh well, I mean, um, kind of Russia like passed a law saying that they were getting genocided. In- in eastern Ukraine, and also eastern U- people, people, Ukraine says they're getting genocide in eastern Ukraine, and then it's con- someone just brought about it in chat, um, you know, saying that you know the left ignoring and genocide, and but it's very amusing because I w- I can't keep track of who was on what side, but there's a con- there's a constant ongoing argument in-, in chat between people who support Russia and who support Ukraine, and I'm like, well, you shouldn't be supporting either, but someone in the chat said. Um, you know, it's not a good look for the left to ignore genocides, and yeah. I didn't know if that yeah, meant yeah, they we were a or a Ukraine supporter of ignoring because there are simultaneously yeah. people who say that uh, those of us who have been urging de-escalation and you know, negotiations in Ukraine are ignoring uh, you know Russian genocide against Ukrainians, and also people who say, "Oh, anybody who says that Russia is is waging an unjustifiable war in Ukraine." Is ignoring the, the the genocide against uh, against Russian speakers in the Donbass, right? You know that that's the that's the other version of this this accusation, and in in both cases, I think that's yeah, I, I think it's unhelpful. I mean, like you you have um, you know you can have 
real war crimes in both of those situations, maybe, right? You know, that the, um, that, you know, I, I think if you actually look at the, um, at the numbers, you know, the shelling of the Donbass post 2014, I think the numbers are not quite what, you know, some online leftists, you know, make it sound like, but like also I have no trouble believing that an army, you know, lay in siege to a separatist area is being way too reckless about use of violence. That is, you know, beyond plausible, right. You know, killing lots of civilians. And certainly the same thing is true, you know, Russia's invasion of, um, of of ukraine and you know there are military operations there you know but like also it's like i don't you know if you just sort of end up making like any war where you bomb a bunch of people genocide i, I don't know i mean this is actually in, in a way this goes back to Oren nimney's point in that essay that i just mentioned because it's like okay what you think you're doing is you're getting people to pay more attention to the particular things that you're using this genocide label to describe. But I mean, oftentimes what you're actually doing is you're just kind of cheapening the word genocide and getting people to take it less seriously. Cause everybody, you know, cause it's like, well, right, and, and now, and now me and you are genocide denials. But... Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, what are you going to do? Um, um, so I just wanted before we kind of get towards the end, maybe yeah. you want to, but do you want to kind of offer, offer like, a very clarified and kind of this isn't actually what I think defense of kind of Zizek's view on Ukraine. Yeah, sure. So I think that uh, I think the Zizek's view on Ukraine, um, I think is um, I think it starts from a reasonable starting point, which is an acknowledgement that um, that that Russia is um, is waging you know, something that, you know, looks very much like an imperial war in, uh, in, in Ukraine that, you know, putting aside the question of, you know, the specific Leninist analysis of imperialism and all of that, but like what we would usually mean by that, uh, I, I think it is. Um, and, you know, there is, uh, that doesn't mean, you know, like there is this frustrating thing that happens in conversations about this where there are like only two people, two positions that people are used to hearing people present. And so if they hear you criticize one of them, they think that you must be, you know, you must be taking the other, but it's like, no, really there are, there, there, there truly are more options than that. in uh, in this, uh, in this case. So I think that if you have, um, Ooh, you're cutting out a bit. Your video is frozen. Your sound is fine. Yeah, I saw that my video was frozen in a very unfortunate place, and I had uh, and so I thought I turn off my camera for a moment. Maybe it would be back, but man, it is not. That is that is interesting. Why isn't it? Yeah, it's funny uh, that you just completely frozen, but the audio is 100 percent fine. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Let me uh, just just this give me a moment. Get for, get for watching live, folks. <laughs> Oh, good lord! Okay, let me uh, let me try this. Let's see what happens here? Let me just all right, all right. I'm way too close up, but at least I'm not frozen anymore. I switched cameras, uh, so. Um, it was interesting. It was this, oh no, going actually. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna. So all I was gonna say before is like, look, I think you can. I think all of the following are true. That. Um, you know, U.S. Uh, you know, policy by the United States and other and other Western powers um, predictably had the effect of inflaming tensions with Russia. That 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 is 
that's the thing that happened. That's the thing like a bunch of, you know, people who cannot be accused of being Putin apologists said would happen. There's like a long list of Western diplomats who are like, yeah, if you keep saying, you know, like saying things like, oh, eventually Ukraine's going to be a NATO and things like this, right? That this is, this is just going to escalate uh, tensions with Russia. And so it did. Uh, and that, you know, it is reasonable that, you know, that one power in making diplomatic and military decisions should take into account the predictable, you know, responses of other powers and, and, you know, not do things, you know, that will, that will make the situation worse. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't really mean like the sort of position that a lot, you know, that I shouldn't say a lot. I think the position that very few Western leftists have, but very few, but overrepresented on Twitter that uh, that there are that like I don't know Vladimir Putin was kind of minding his own business and then like you know NATO somehow forced him to invade Ukraine. It's like no, that's not true either, right? Like I think if um, you know this is this is a decision. In fact, in some ways, it's kind of a crazily irrational and self-destructive decision. Uh, empires do that; they make crazy you know crazily irrational and self-destructive decisions. Uh, my sense is that, you know, Russians couldn't get what they thought they would at the table, you know, in sort of threatening war. And, and then they uh, they went ahead with it in ways that have gone really badly for them. But uh, but in any case, I think the thing itself is thoroughly unjustified. I mean, to, to use, I mean, I wrote an article for Current Affairs called What Aboutism Always a Bad Thing, where I suggested that, like, asking what about questions is actually often very clarificatory. And so, look, if... Um, you know, a there was a civil war in Mexico, and uh, there was a left-wing government in Mexico in like the '80s that had like tried to join the Warsaw Pact. You know, was was pursuing membership in the Warsaw Pact as a defensive thing because they were already worried about American aggression. That would probably lead uh, to uh, an American invasion. You know, that would be the least surprising thing ever. And uh, but of course, people like you and me would be marching in anti-war protests if that had happened as we should, right? So I, I think you can say all of the following, that Western policy helped make the situation worse, make war more likely to happen, true. Russia launched an unjustified invasion and we should have solidarity with like the Russian anti-war movement, also true. And uh, the, uh, and the, uh, uh, and sort of deepening US involvement um, and uh, sort of, escalation of more and more direct U.S. involvement, you know, in terms of tanks, in terms of Ukrainian troops being traded in the U.S. now, uh, is pointing in some really terrifying uh, directions. And uh, and World War III would be bad. Uh, also true, right? All of that's my view. Now, Slavoj, I think, um, you know, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, part of it, you know, you could, like, criticize him for, for saying... Um, you know, having a perspective that's like, look, I think if you live in Ljubljana, uh, which is something like 800 miles from Ukraine, uh, I think it's not mysterious to me. Yeah, but come on, Ben. Russia's advancing about 10 meters a day. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think that the now, yeah, but I mean, if you go back to February, you know, I, th I think people... Uh, I think people are understandably spooked, uh, and uh, and I think that you know, and I think that the like which sort of preoccupations lay the heaviest in your head, right? Whether you you worry more about you know Russia 
or about um, or about what America might you know might do in response. I think it makes sense to me that the that like the way that things um, you know every uh, you know every thousand miles you get closer to the situation. You know, like I find I it gets a little bit more forgivable to me how you could, from my, my perspective, not keep the keep these things in the perspective you should. So, um, so I think that he's sort of starting from a correct position, which is this is an unjustified invasion. This this is this is imperial, certainly the loose sense of the word. Um, I think that's all correct. I think that the um, and then I think he's and then I think he's just wrong in saying like, well, therefore, you know, we, we should be all for everything that's being done to, to help fend it off and, you know, all for. I think the, the, the thing with Zizek is even more than what's happening in kind of Ukraine, it seemed from that Guardian article that what he supported was the re- kind of eternal response within Europe, that kind of mm-hmm. Europe should be in a big military alliance and it should, you know, get more tanks out and blah, 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 regardless of what was happening internally in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, again, I, th- I think that there's, um, I mean, look, one of the reasons it's a, one of the reasons it's such a bad thing, and by the way, such an irrational thing that Russia invaded Ukraine, is because that is a predictable response that people are going to have to it. I mean, you know, you, you're worried about NATO being expanded. Well, now we're going to have fucking Sweden in NATO. Good job, right? You know, like uh, that's a uh, like it. It makes sense that you're going to have people who see a major land war break out on the continent who are going to who are going to to react by, um, you know, by by circling the wagons. That doesn't mean it's justifiable, but it does mean it's a predictable reaction. Now, the reason I, I think, think um, kind wrong, of like is is I think that it's um, even though it's a very expected uh, it's a very expected reaction, right? I mean, in the same way that like um, you know, like. Uh, you know, post nine eleven, even some politicians that I admire, you know, like like uh, relaxed their anti interventionism in ways that I do not like, and I did not agree with at the time. But like, I I did I wasn't shocked by that, right? You know that the the reason, um, fact that it's an understandable reaction doesn't mean it's a correct reaction. And I actually think that like, you should also pause to think, okay, but like, will expansion of military alliances ultimately make the world safer? Uh, make it less likely that things like this are going to happen in the future, maybe. But also, maybe uh, the the effect in practice is going to be that the um, world is going to be much more dangerous because you have because uh, because so many more countries would be drawn into to any you know future conventional uh, conventional war uh, between uh, between major powers and you know. Right, it's just kind of it's not clear where it stops, right? Like with the European yeah. Union and. With with NATO, the yeah. the thing is kind of it just went on and on until it hit until it hit Russia basically until it hit kind of a, a target which resisted. So you're like, well, if Russia wasn't there, would they just keep going? Oh, I see. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that the um, I I mean, I think that what what does make it slightly complicated is it's not like. You know, it's not like the United States or Western European powers were like, you know, knocking on doors in Eastern Europe, being like, "Hey, you guys want to join NATO? Have you thought about joining NATO yet?" You know, etc. It's like, no, these people wanted to join NATO because uh, they're in the shadow of a great power, 
uh, they're they're worried. You know, if, if there were a um, I mean, look, if there were an anti-American uh, military alliance that was available for it to join, uh, I'm sure like Venezuela would have you know, would have joined one long ago for obvious defensive reasons. And so, so I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's if that's true, Ben, because the kind of in the late '90s and early 2000s, the thing was Russia was meant to join NATO, and then yeah. and, and then if that had happened, Estonia would be fucked, and Georgia <laughs> would be fucked. And Ukraine uh, would have been perhaps, perhaps. I mean, it's like there's there's a f- sort of further question about what would have happened. I mean, like actually that very idea, right? That was kind of resuscitated by Bernie Sanders in 2016. That like he actually had this is everybody's forgotten about this because this was just a very minor blip in that campaign. But there was actually a point where he he put out this idea. There was like, oh, we should, um, you know, we should dissolve NATO and we should have this new thing that, as he described it sounded a whole lot like nato except that russia would also be a member of it uh, and uh and and so it's like i don't you know would all these countries have been fucked if that had happened i'm not sure i think it depends on like whether i mean if you assume that they, that russia still would have done the same things uh in this world then yeah i guess they would have been right i mean like if if there's a um uh but i mean like whether you would have had i mean if these countries were also in nato or we imagined an intra-nato like wars breaking out or we imagined that like russia is in nato and these countries aren't but they're still doing the same thing which by the way if that happened then like if we're assuming that that happened we're definitely assuming that uh this was not a response to nato expansion that this happened for completely separate reasons you know um well i mean if if that happens then you know we'd we'd have um the so-called tankies uploading uh, upholding azov against Russian <laughs> yeah right uh that's uh that would be fascinating to see and i i actually i actually think if we can look at the if we had the device in uh rick and morty that lets you watch cable tv from other dimensions i'm pretty sure there is a dimension where uh where where western tankies are enthusiastic about azov because the uh because uh uh because because nato in, in the form of russia is uh is is attacking them but uh, but, you know, I mean, I think going back to Zizek, um, you know, I, yes, I think some of this stuff is short-sighted. Uh, that, that would, that's my view. I think that the, um, that uh, I think that there is probably um, some sort of like Euro-liberal consensus thinking that, um, that, that he's, he's been influenced by to some extent on this stuff that is, um I think it's just importantly wrong that uh, that there's a there's a kind of like I don't know domino theory light going on there that I think should be rejected that uh, that and you know I mean again I know I know the only war that we're ever allowed to compare anything to is World War II but if we can also do World War One every once in a while right and remember the role of elaborate you know military alliances and causing that I think you can see how how having a bigger a bigger NATO and more European security lines that all that could actually make the world um, could actually make the world less safe, right? So, so, so this is all of which is to say, um, it's not a mystery to me where he's coming from, but I do think he's mistaken. And I, I actually, I, I saw, you know, I, I at the uh, Hay Festival in Wales last summer, I, I saw him, and, uh, um. And and we were like talking in the green room and and uh, and I said some you of this. You like stuff. you NATO swine? Uh, no, 
but he he okay, said something. Uh, he said something. He said something critical about like what Chomsky has been saying. I was like, yeah, I agree with Chomsky. I was like, eh. you know, it's like it's sort of a sort of a dismissive grunt and then change the subject. Uh, but it's also it, it's come up a couple times. Otherwise, he knows what I think. Uh, but I disagree with him uh, about that topic, and it's an important topic. But also, I would just urge that if you have a view of what people's politics are of um, of a foreign policy in general that's like all through the lens of of this one conflict in Eastern Europe, I think you're going to be missing a lot. And I think that um, there, you know, there's a lot, I mean, this is kind of in a way, I mean, this is the same sort of disease that leads a lot of people to, um, you know, like a, maybe not a lot of people, a certain kind of contrarian journalist, let's say, to to say oh actually the like republicans are the real anti-war ones now because because right. uh, there are you know a handful of republicans who will vote against funding packages for you oh, because they, they don't they don't have the presidency at the moment <laughs> yeah, yeah which is definitely part of it right because like yeah like under when, when bush was president you know you were more likely to get certain kinds of criticisms of american foreign policy from democrats but also, so that's definitely part of it, but it's like also if you actually look at what these guys have said, um, almost every case Republicans have voted against funding packages for, for Ukraine never said like, you know, they didn't say like chomsky things about it, right? I mean, they, they, didn't, they didn't say like, there's one exception, which is actually, it's going to be the most bizarre credit where credit is due ever. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, <laughs> who's like the craziest person in Congress. Uh, she, in her statement, she actually did say something about peace negotiations, but she was an extreme outlier. Uh, all the rest of them, you know, they, they said, uh, like in their statements explaining it, they would basically say two things, which are like, um, it's too much money slash... Uh, you we know, need we these bombs at home. Yeah, exactly. It's too much money slash, uh, you know, well, these European countries that are closer to the conflict should be picking up more of the tab, right? It's it's a sort of, um, you know, we, we you know, uh, I'm not going to pay for it, you pay for it, right? It's not like I want the, the guns to stop. I just think somebody else should be should be ponying up for the bullets or, you know, we, we should be cutting the budget more. Or what an awful lot of them said is, well, this is all a distraction, from what we should really be focused on, which is the threat from China. Oh, I, th I thought you were going to say um, Biden emails Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, they, they can, uh, you know, they, they obviously are very concerned with, you know, I'm, I'm actually amazed that the Republicans have had the majority of Congress for like weeks and we haven't had the, the, the Hunter Biden's cock congressional hearings yet. I, I'm, I'm assuming those are coming very quickly. Well, um, they, only, they only just got a speaker, right? That took ages. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I assume that every single image from those emails, the, the crack smoking, etc., you know, will be, you know, blown up on giant screens on the House floor, you know, while they're doing hearings about this. But uh, but no, they would all say, uh, yeah, it's the, you know, we shouldn't be, um, you know, we shouldn't be so focused on this Eastern Europe stuff. It's like we need to really, we need to really focus on our uh, our great power conflict with China. You know, right. that was. That, that's the position they'll take, which, by the way, uh, potentially could be even more dangerous than the, than, than the one we're having with Russia right now. Because if, uh, 
because uh, current U.S. policy, I mean, you know, Joe Biden has made some terrifying statements about how if, if China invades Taiwan, you know, we're, we're, we should have like boots on the ground. And, uh, you're going to fucking, fucking defend South Korea with nuclear missiles. It's like, all right, mate, fucking hell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, I think, uh, and also, also like, as Russia has been proven for the last year, um, like, even with everything else, even with the fight the Ukrainians put up, even with uh, the the United States, like, topping up Ukraine's entire military budget many times over, like, they probably... Have you seen that there's, there's estimates that Ukraine, if you include all the military aid, probably now has a larger military budget than Russia? I'm not surprised. Uh, but, like, even with, even with all that stuff, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that they would have taken Kiev at the very beginning if not for the fact that the Russian military itself is such a weird mess, because it's like everything else. Well, I mean, they, they, the, the Russians went, invaded Ukraine, not as kind of like a military operation. It was like as a peacekeeping operation or like a police action or whatever. It wasn't structured as a military invasion. Yeah, and it failed on that basis. Yeah, because, well, right. So they thought they would, they thought they'd be able to just, I mean, insanely, they thought that they could just do what they did with like Crimea, where they just got kind of ruled in. Uh, but um, on this larger scale for the, the whole country, which didn't really make sense. But even there, I think if you look at the, I mean, some of what our friend Kuba has put out about this, I mean, if you look at the um, the fact that, like, you know, part of the problem is, you know, the supply chains were so bad, you know, that, like, when they should have been able to sweep it at the beginning, they just weren't, which is probably, again, it's like, like it's been, a, like, the Russian military has been hollowed out, like, everything else in Russian society has, since the early 1990s i mean i'm sure that like but also of, like fighting a war is really hard sure right but like uh but i also think like there's a lot of logistical stuff that it's like yeah somebody's like mobbed up brother-in-law had the contract to do it and, right there's a lot uh, of stuff that was meant to be and, and he just pocketed you know the money or whatever like it's sitting in a you know bank account in western europe somewhere so but yeah i mean i think that um you know, it's so, so all of which is to say, it's like the same way that I think you're making a mistake if you say, oh, you know, Josh Howley is like this great anti-war guy because he didn't, uh, he didn't vote for the, the aid packages to Ukraine. I think, you know, you're making a mistake if you sort of uh, look at, you know, some of the mistakes I think Slavoj has made over the Ukraine situation and kind of connect some weird dots uh like Rock Hill certainly doing back to the eighties in Yugoslavia and the early nineties where, you know, I mean, the reason I, um, there's a point of the essay where I call him a, you know, neo-Stalinist. We were talking earlier about the word Stalinist being used too promiscuously, but it's like, there's a point where he actually uses as evidence of Slavoj's anti-socialist views that he, he wanted to abolish Slovenia's political police. Uh, and it's like, okay, if you think those are inseparable issues right you know as well it's a socialist it's a socialist secret police force so we could say you know for police abolition <laughs> yeah exactly right you know uh i think you know i think i don't think you're doing the cause of socialism any favors if you refuse to disaggregate the uh the the cause of socialism for the cause of supporting the kinds of secret police forces that various state socialist regimes have uh uh well, I mean, also to say that um, Yugoslavia wasn't kind of anything like 
the like the Soviet Union in the 1930s or whatever. Like they oh, had like yeah. a, weird, a weird mark. Like I don't know if you, Americans. You just... know, I don't know if Americans know this, but like all yeah. all my relatives of a certain age went to Yugoslavia on holiday. Yeah, like it was like a northern <laughs> country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, um, you know, my uh, my relatives on, on my mom's side actually come from from the former Yugoslavia, uh, from from Croatia, which is part of the reason that I probably. Uh, like Zizek so much, there's a sort of cultural style there that I'm very comfortable with. But uh, I have, um, but it's like, yeah, for sure. It was vastly more liberal than like the Soviet Union at its worst or, you know, uh, or really the Soviet Union until maybe a sort of extreme glasnostization uh, had kicked in. But it's, um, but it's also, um, you know, but I mean, I, th I think, you know, it's still, we're still talking about, you know, a much softer version than that, but still an authoritarian one-party state. And I think that it, it uh, if we're going to have a uh, a view, like if we're going to have a vision of a kind of socialism worth worth fighting for, that like uh, a kind of socialism that we're actually going to be able to get the majority of the population in capitalist countries to get excited about, right? I think it's got to be better than that. No, my, my point was to say if you're a real Stalinist, you shouldn't support Yugoslavia. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so now 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 we've come we've come all the way around, and it's it's the yeah, Gabriel yeah. Oculus at Stalinist enough. That's the yeah, that's yeah. the critique now. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, yeah, I, I mean it's and, and in fact actually it's kind of funny because you probably could make similar moves to some of the ones he makes there. It's like oh he did things that were you know part you know he was. Uh, you know, that the, the CIA was supporting this or that, right? You know, like dissident thing. It's like, okay, well, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure the CIA or maybe OSS, you know, was like pretty enthusiastic about Tito's break with Stalin too, right? You know, just right. like, like, so like the Yugoslav regime itself, right? You know, could, could be accused of that. It's like, it's all kind of a silly way. I mean, it definitely argue. was. Yeah. Uh, like it's, it's all kind of a silly way to argue. Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think the way you should do left politics is you should like try to figure out what the CIA thinks of every individual conjecture and just like you, say the, you know that, that. Um, when, when Mussolini was, a, was on the far left, he actually started getting, getting paid by the British government. And that's what they basically paid him to become a fascist. So, he, you know, he was pretty enthusiastic about himself, about himself. He, he went easily into it, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think that like you, you just have to have some better, you know, perspective about this, and um, and I also think that if you're going to go back into the the archives and kind of look at, um, you know, look at people's, you know, political positions in like the '80s or '90s, I think that you should also um, just be more careful about it. Than some of these critiques are. In other words, uh, you like in some of this stuff gets to be sort of the political, like sort of is to politics what the oh look he said that you know uh, he said this thing about you know Hitler and Gandhi and violence or whatever is to the more abstract theoretical stuff where you people end up just kind of hunting for quotations that sound bad and and they don't. Yeah. They don't provide context, right? So I think that in the um, uh, like 
like the most egregious example of this for me, you know, in the uh, in the Rock Hill uh, piece was uh, this, you know, he found something from back in 1990. Uh, there's a presidential election in, in Slovenia. Um, weirdly, Slovenia has, or back at that point, had three presidents. It's a strange system. There's a three-person president. It was, it was, it, I think they had four vice presidents, and Zizek came fifth. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's an alternate world where he... You know, I mean, it, it was basically like a fake job, but it would have been funny if Zizek had got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but and so there's a there's a debate. You can still watch some of it on YouTube. Uh, I have the you know I I embed it in the uh, in the article, and it's also linked to one of Rockwell's footnotes, where the the various candidates are um, arguing about uh, economic policy, and and Rockhill uh, pulls out this line of you know this like fragment of a sentence about planned privatizations, and says, "Aha, look." He was pro-privatization. And it's like, well, you actually watch that thing. And it's like almost the opposite of what he's saying, right? I mean, like, like what he's saying in context is he's, he's staking out a position far to the left of like the other four people in that debate. And he's saying that, well, these, these sort of wild privatizations that we're having, you know, this kind of like economic shock therapy is a disaster that, you know, that, that you're destroying people's lives, uh, that everything's being upended. And he actually explicitly advocates renationalizing businesses that have already been privatized and says, look, if, if we if ultimately we do end up deciding that, you know, some of these businesses, you know, uh, that like, you know, in these some of these sectors that some of this stuff should be privatized, fine. But we can at least do plan privatizations where we can we take, you know, mind the, you know, social consequences and all this stuff. But like for now, let's let's renationalize. Right. That's the argument. Now, the re- like the reasonable uh, left critique of what he's actually saying is that by 1990, um, his political, like the horizons of his politics, like the ambitions of this political party that he was part of, were were limited to just sort of having a nicer, more social democratic version of capitalism than what was being. Well, I, mean, I, I was just thinking when I was read that, like I wasn't, you know, I was like, yeah, obviously Zizek isn't neoliberal wasn't being neoliberal then but it was that kind of thing well what 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 the fuck did you expect mate like yeah, of, yeah. Of when you support the end of of the yugoslavian government this was going to happen yeah i mean i think that the um i mean i think probably the case in yugoslavia is the same as a lot of the other um uh, well not that yugoslavia is part of the eastern Bloc exactly but like a lot of the similar governments that existed in the eastern Bloc, which is to say that you know that when when things kind of start to crack, uh, that they have um, that uh, you know the people who were the government of that country, right? Ten seconds later, right, are uh, are are actually the ones who are you know selling themselves the uh, the the country's the country's economy and you know getting ready to become oligarchs. I mean, I think that I think the the sort of more interesting issue to me that's raised by what you just said is okay is there a timeline where we neither like stay in place right it's 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 neither the case that like yugoslavia is just the way it was in 1980 for you know which i don't know if, i don't know if there's even a scenario where that happens exactly but it's like they have a it's not that and it's also not what happened right but that like we get some kind of uh better um better socialism 
uh, that uh, that you, you you have, you know, like this is and uh, and Zizek himself has actually gotten you know like a little cynical and frustrated about that in some of his his statements. I mean, I, I mentioned in the Pervert's Guide to Ideology, his movie in 2012. There's this point where where he sort of says. Uh, you know, I want to get excited about like looking back at the Prague Spring in '68, but you know, probably being real about this, like it would have either just sort of collapsed back into being a normal authoritarian capitalist communist country, or it would have been absorbed into the capitalist world, which is an incredibly depressing thought. Uh, I, I mean, you know, to me, it's like, well, yeah, fucking, what else is gonna happen, mate? Yeah, no, I mean, that's yeah, I mean, it's it's a, and, and I think like this is actually one of the things, you know, maybe to sort of, you know as we kind of come to the end of this, like to sort of do a, um, get a little bit more into the sort of broader value I'd, I'd see in some of his work. That's like, I actually respect the fact that um, as of, you know, 2012 or 2023, right. You know, that he's like, uh, he's serious enough about these subjects to be a little cynical and frustrated about them. Uh, cause, uh, cause I, I sort of don't trust anybody who, who isn't at least a little bit. Like, I think that it's, um, like, if you want to um, not just, uh, you know, like, theorize about the late capitalist hellscape that we're in, I mean, you know, do that too. I mean, we are here for the series that we're doing to talk about philosophy podcast and, you know, pro theory. But, like, you know, if you want to do so with an eye towards transcending it and relating it, uh, if we're going to be pretentious and fancy about it, uh, the... Uh, then I think you, you have to do that in a way that's real about exactly how difficult that is, that, the, uh, that um, in the sort of historical situation that we're in right now, it's incredibly difficult to see how that would, how that would actually happen. Um, like what's the, you know, what's the sort of scenario, like step-by-step step that, would, that would get us to, um, to a successful, you know, revolution, a new mode of production, whatever that, uh, and, you know, I certainly wouldn't claim that I, I have one of those in my back pocket, you know, I mean, like, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have some sort of hazy ideas about that, that, you know, that uh, are a little scattered, but I, I do think that, um, you know, I do think that, somebody like Zizek, even though he's, um, you know, sometimes like I get the reaction. If you just kind of look at, you know, look at his shtick, you're like, Oh, this is just silly. Right. Like, 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 like I understand why somebody might think that. Um, I would suggest engaging with it a little bit more and, and, and watching and reading and listening to more. And I, I think I'd be surprised if, you know, you do think that if you don't find more valuable and interesting, insights the further you go in but i mean I, I get it as an initial reaction i think that but i think that one thing that he's done for me is as i talk about in the essay is that i think he said a lot of things that are kind of about that about sort of thinking about what a new society could look like that have like none of these things have um that that have really complicated my understanding of some of this stuff that i don't think you know none of it's None of it's made me not a socialist. None of it's made me be like, oh, pfft, I guess capitalism's fine. Then never mind, right? <laughs> like, uh, but I think it has maybe made me a smarter socialist because I, th I think there are like difficulties and complications that he's brought up 
that uh, that I have um, that uh, that have you know that have made me have to think a lot harder about this, right? And that 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 would kind of ultimately be my pitch for like don't um, you know don't write this guy off. And it's it's not just like I mean like look, there's the sort of glibber version I could do, which is like you know. I like Marxism. I like history. I like Hitchcock movies. Why wouldn't I like watching this guy talk about all that stuff, which is true as far as it goes. Right. But it's like, uh, I think the, I think the more earnest version would just be to say that it's like, yeah, I don't always agree with him. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't, right. You have to take it case by case. But I mean, I think that, um, I, I think I've learned a lot right from from engaging with with what he has to say even when i disagree with him and i think that i think that he always i think he's he's always gonna have even at the times that i disagree with the most the most with what he says i think he he always has like interesting things to say and he always has things to say that um that make me think harder about what he's talking about and you know i can't really say the same thing for the people writing these like you know actually he's just a clown and you know and a imperialist stooge or whatever hit pieces well uh this week we didn't cancel zizek next week i will be canceling chomsky <laughs> uh, um, that's, that that sounds fun. what's what's the plan for next week yeah so uh so next well next week we probably won't be able to do this uh uh like i'll 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 write something for the Substack, but we're not going to be able to do this, I think, because I am going to be in New York. And, well, of course, it's a live show. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we will have. Um, uh, we're uh, we're going to. Uh, so yeah. So the live show is is next Sunday. Uh, the uh, door, you know, there's a like VIP ticket holder meet and greet at five. Uh, New York time, and this is at this our normal time for this is at four New York time. So I'm probably going to have to be there before that. But uh, so we won't be able to. Uh, we're not going to be able to do that. Uh, but uh, I will have something on the Substack for subscribers. And then I suppose the week after that we'll talk about that and the next one at the same time. Um, we'll be on for three hours, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's good. That's good. Uh, I'll and I'll I'll do. And I, and I, I saw the chat question. Uh, tell you what, I'm not going to try to improv it, but within two weeks, I'll come up with my uh, Hitchcock tier list. Uh, and, uh, there we go. And, ben, ben does read things I put right in front of his face. <laughs> we could uh, we could do that. Uh, we could do that at the uh, at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the stream. But no, I, I actually think it might be interesting to. Um, you know, I've I've been kind of trying to alternate a little bit, like uh, having sort of uh, more uh, more Marxy kind of content and uh, and more general philosophical content. And in this case, because the Zizek thing sort of came up um, in uh, in the discourse at the time that it did, so I, I ended up sort of doubling up. On the right. uh, on the Mark Sear content uh, from from last week and this week, uh, but I, I will. Uh, uh, so I, I think I'd like to uh, to do something a little bit more general. I actually think like I sort of teased in the, the fortnight then on the lie paradox. Don't tempt me. I might actually do it. 
<laughs> yeah, the thing is, I, I couldn't fumble around logic in the dark, so. <laughs> You'll be all right. I, that's kind of the most baffling thing I'll see on RSHS philosophy, when some kind of person's like, what, what's the answer to this? And it's like, R, weird symbol, L, weird symbol, C, weird symbol. I'm like, is this philosophy? What's, what? There's just letters and symbols and, and numbers. What's going on? <laughs> well, uh, if I do, if I do do the liar paradox one, I will, I will, I will try to keep it as uh, as symbol light as, uh, as as humanly possible. I do want people to actually read this thing. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, let's knock off. All right. Sounds good.